So, are you having a great summer? Well, uh, yeah, I'm having a, a great summer. It hasn't been a, a busy summer. Um, but, I mean, not busy playing, but it's been busy because, you know, I have family and right. so on and so forth. And does it concern you when you're not busy? Not anymore. <laughs> Because it's just, you have ups and downs all the time, right? Oh, yeah. You, you, you get used to it. I mean, I'd like to be a little busier, but at the same time, um, it doesn't bother me so much because I've got other things that I you know, can do, stuff like that, especially the summertime. You know? So I'm, I'm talking to Mike Fitzpatrick, who is the drummer for the Downchild Blues Band, amongst other bands. He's somebody I've known for 15 years. Or more. Or more. Maybe 20. Maybe 20. But I don't know a lot about you. Okay. Well, <laughs> who, who are I don't you? Know a lot, you I don't know a lot about myself, Mako. <laughs> um, but where, where do you come from? Where were you born? Well, I was actually born in Brampton, okay. Ontario. So not yeah. too far away. That's not far away. It's just outside the city. And uh, I, I moved away from there. Um, when I was about, uh, my family, I, I was about two years old, and um, carried on. What did your parents do? My parents? Yeah. Uh, well, my father, uh, my, now here's the thing about my family. Uh, I'm the youngest of uh, eight siblings. Wow. Uh, all the other seven uh, and my parents were all born in Northern Ireland, right? Okay. So uh, the family emigrated here, and um, I was the result of my parents being separated for a couple of years because my father came over with my oldest brother first, and uh, then the rest of the family came over, and there was me. <laughs> So uh, my father in Ireland was like a, uh, uh, a theater manager. Really? Like, yeah, he managed theaters and, and stuff like that in, in uh, a place called Londonderry. Which Are we talking was, life theater or more films? Uh, both. Okay. Both, yeah. So he, he was that. And then, uh, of course, when he decided to come to Canada... Um, as far as I know, anyways, that was the end of that. And he came over here and he worked, uh, he got a job working at uh, A.V. Rowe, which produced the Avro Arrow and so on and wow. so forth, right? So uh, the Avro Arrow project got uh, canceled. So he had to Under go, much controversy. Yes, a lot of controversy, and, and I guess nobody will ever really know. It's one of those things. But uh, my father, from that point, um, he moved. Um, well, he didn't move, but he got a job in California. So we stayed put, and he went to California, and he worked there for, I don't know, six months or a year or whatever, and then he ended up, I guess he got a job maybe, uh, I don't know if it was uh, in one of the, um, uh, like in the auto industry, but uh, he ended up uh, going and working in Detroit for a little while. And uh, then eventually, I guess, uh, the aircraft factory, which had been A.V. Rowe, 
reopened in uh, Malton by the airport as uh, McDonnell Douglas. Right. So he went back there. But the wow. family never moved. We didn't go to California or Michigan. or. So you had some years or time without your father. That must have been strange. Well, yeah. I mean, well, that was, yeah, because, I mean, uh, you have to remember, like, my father, when he had me, he already had seven kids. He was in his middle 40s. Right. <laughs> I have an older brother uh, who lives in, in Albany, New York who is more like uh, a father to me than my own father was. Right. My, my father, to me, because I was young and he was, he was older and he was busy and he was doing his thing and everything like that, my father was like this guy who was around the house sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't like a real dad to me. Wow, okay. Yeah. I mean, he was, but he wasn't. Yeah, I you know, I knew he was my father, whatever that meant. But as I say, my, my, uh, one of my older brothers was uh, more like a father than my father because my father was busy doing whatever it is he had to do to feed eight people, you know. Uh, so, and uh, my older brother would, would uh, like I was into sports a lot when I was a kid, and my older brother would uh, coach me and take me to games and do all the stuff that normally dads would do. How much but, older is he? Oh, he's um, he's almost twenty years older. Okay. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, I mean, there was a big separation between the the oldest, right, and um, me. This is probably an unfair question because you don't know any different. But what's it like growing in a family of eight kids? Well, from your perspective, the youngest. To, from my perspective, it was just normal. Right, because I mean that's just the way it was. Uh, we had one bathroom mm-hmm. and ten people, <laughs> and of course my dad was first. So uh, <laughs> uh, you had to wait your turn, or or go outside. But to me it was just normal. I mean it was a three bedroom house. We had four girls in one room. We had four boys in another room, and my parents had a room, and uh, it was just to me it just seemed like the normal thing to do. So when I ask mu- musicians, a lot, a lot of musicians about how they got into music, more often than not, it's because of the siblings who kind of brought in right. music and that's how they were. Is right. that the case for you? No, it wasn't, that, it wasn't the case for me at all because uh, although uh, both my mother and father played piano, not professionally, uh, and, and they had, in, in the house in Ireland, they had a piano, so they both played over there. But when they came to Canada, there was never a piano. And um, my oldest brother played a little bit of guitar and harmonica and sang. And the, the brother who was like a father to me, he, he's still a very good singer. Uh, but nobody else really, and, but they weren't professional, and, and none of my other siblings... Uh, were really into to playing music at all. And I think what happened with me was I had sisters who were like teenagers right. in the, you know, early to middle 60s. <clears throat> and there was a hall at the end of the street and they used to have dances in, in there. And uh, I guess it was Friday nights. So, you know, being seven or eight years old, whatever it was, you know, you, you'd go up there and, you know, 
peek in the windows and see what's going on. And I was in there, I was looking in there one night and I saw this guy playing the drums. They had a band in there and there was a guy in there and he was playing the drums and I just thought, wow, that's, I've, I've never seen anything that cool in my whole life, ever. What and made it so cool to you? I don't know. I mean, it was just like, wow. It, it was just, it was a life-changing experience for me to, wow. to, to see somebody actually playing the drums, to see drums, first of all, and then to see somebody play them. And it was just like, wow. I mean, you know, and I was always like that. I would go and see bands play, and I'm still like that. Um, go and see bands play, but I, I can't take my eyes off the drummer. I just got to know what it is he's doing or try to know what he's doing. Well, but anything else, not the guitar, not the bass, no, never the drums. Never. Never, n not interested at all. The only thing that, that interested me were the drums. And were you into music at that point? Like, were you listening to uh, Well, music? yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I would hear what would come on the radio and, and stuff like that. And I guess around that time, it was the Beatles or something. And, um, but other than that, yeah, no, I wasn't into playing music or, or anything like that. Although, after I got into the drums and so on and, and got an interest for it, there was a little variety store at the end of the street, and they had like a, a little tin, maybe eight-inch drum, and little wee sticks like that. And uh, <laughs> I asked my mother if I could, if she would buy it for me, and it was like sixty-nine cents or something, and she did. So I had a drum because before that I would I would, uh, and I even have a, a picture of this. Uh, I would take the metal garbage cans. And I would turn them upside down, <laughs> set them up, and play. Just by myself in the backyard, you know, just make up stuff or whatever, whatever is in a kid's head, you know, and pretend I'm playing the drums and <laughs> had these little uh, bamboo dowling things and, you know. So from that, from that one moment where you saw the guy with the drums, that was it. This is Pretty what you much. Really And Pretty you didn't much. care yeah. if you had a drum yeah. set. Yeah, yeah. And, and another story was... Uh, uh, probably around the same time. I guess my bedtime was like 9 o'clock or something like that. And uh, just as I was to go to bed, a movie came on. It was uh, Sal Mineo in the Gene Krupa story. Right. And I saw like the first 30 seconds of it. And I went, oh, wow, I can't believe this. And uh, my mother said, nope, <laughs> bedtime. And my dad actually stood up for me and said, let him watch. So I, I watched the Gene Krupa story with Sal Mineo as, you know, eight or nine years old or whatever. And, and what did you get out of that movie at that point in your life? <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you're going to uh, be a drummer, you, you're going to have to deal with women and, and pot. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, that was the takeaway? Yeah, that was the takeaway. And I went... Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, that's cool. So now, so, so I presume you never went up that one, that drummer, that that one scene probably changed your life, mm-hmm. but you never got to talk to that drummer. No, not that night I didn't. Um, but I did know him because he was like a, a, a local guy. And oh, then okay. I found out he was, he was a drummer and, uh, and I talked to him a little bit and, uh, you know, just, just was interested in it. I just loved it. So it's at this point, it's more about playing the drums as opposed to playing a certain type of music. Exactly. And it didn't matter what it was. Didn't matter what it was. Uh, but like I say, you know, what I was hearing on the radio was, you know, whatever was on at the time, like the Beatles or Roy Orbison. The first song I remember playing that I thought I could play pretty good was Pretty Woman, uh, Roy Orbison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, but, uh, yeah, whatever was on the radio, you know, I just kind of play along with it. And... With your trash cans in the back. Pardon me? With your trash cans in the back. Yeah, and my little uh, tin snare. Okay. S- uh, snare drum that had no snares on it. So at what point did you get your first drum set? Well, I was probably about 11. And uh, my mother bought me a set of Winston drums for Christmas. Uh, actually, no, that's not true. Uh, that was my first set, but probably a couple of years prior to that, my mother bought me a uh, a snare drum, like a real snare drum, uh, Stuart. Right. I still have it, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, I still have it, and I use it every day to practice on. Uh, I put a practice pad on it, right. you know, a rubber pad, and, and do rudiments on it. But, um, yeah, I still have that drum. She bought that for me, and then a couple of years after that, I got, like, not really a full set, but um, a snare drum and a tom and a bass drum and a cymbal. And I don't even think I, there was a hi-hat with that set. I'm not sure. And then probably I had that set for a while. And then when I was probably about 14 or 15, something like that, I, uh, for some reason, I, I, I had a job and I don't know what I was doing, but I had some kind of a job, and and I had uh, you know a little bit of money, and, and I bought uh, like a full drum kit uh, for two hundred dollars, Red Sparkle Stewarts. Oh, <laughs> I love those. I don't have those anymore, and I don't have the the, the set that my mother bought me, the, the Winston's. But um, and then shortly after that. Uh, when I was about 17 because after I ha- had the Stuart drums uh, I went to Long and McQuaid's I, I started to know what that was all about and everything and I rented a, a Ludwig uh, snare drum for a week or something like that it wasn't much money in those days and I just could not believe the difference of playing on my Stuart snare drum compared to the Ludwig snare drum. Uh, just the sound and the response, it was like, it was like, you know, driving uh, uh, a smart car and a Rolls Royce, I guess. You know, I've never driven either, but it, it was a huge difference. So I decided at, at some point shortly thereafter that um, I had to get some real drums. And uh, so I did. Were you playing in a band at this point, or are you still playing? Not really. I mean, I was just jamming with, uh, you know, 
kids in my neighborhood who had uh, any any interest in music. I was actually in a band when I was about nine or ten, um, and these guys were all older than me. Uh, but uh, we actually played gigs at like some of the local schools, you know, the grade schools, grade eight graduations and stuff like that. And I remember uh, one time we were playing at, at my school and, and it was the coolest thing because I was in grade six and these guys were in grade eight and the dance was for the grade seven and eights. So <clears throat> I, I'll never forget the teachers saying, uh, uh, talking about the dance and everything like that and how I had to be excused from class early to go and set up to play the dance. <laughs> and I remember thinking how cool that was because all the other suckers in my class had to stay there until the bell rang, but not me because I played the drums. So there's like dope women and they <laughs> get out of classes. Yeah, yeah. All of which now when you get to my age are like... Eh. <laughs> <laughs> you go back to eight years old again, you know. And once again, did it matter what kind of music you played, or did you? No, not at that time. Again, we were playing whatever was popular. Like at that time, I remember in the band that I was in, uh, we were doing things like the Turtles and uh, whoever else was was happening at that time. You know. Did you take lessons? No, I never did. I I, I took like two two lessons. And went, you know, I just, this is going to be a slow process. <laughs> so I thought, you know, no, I don't, I don't really want to do this. I wish I had up now. You Can know. you read? Yeah, I read. Oh, okay. So you I learned read. that on your own? Yeah, I, I learned how to do that. Wow. But, um, you know, I'm, it's not something that I, I, like, there's never any call for it with the kind of music I play. So right. unless you practice it. You just get stale, but yeah, I I can do it. But it, it like if I was to get into a situation where I had to do it, it I would probably have to start all over again and, and right. practice and work my way up to that. You know, to be a, a good sight reader because uh, I've just never really had any yeah. call to do it in so long right. that uh, it probably just would take me a while so were you naturally good or did you were you good as a drummer very quickly or well i've never been good so (laughs) (laughs) that's not true yeah no you know yeah obviously i mean it's something that uh, i had an interest for and and had a a little bit of talent for right so but it, it came easy to you yeah i guess so compared to anybody else at that time that was trying to play the drums, you know, and sometimes, like, uh, it's funny because around that time, where I was, a, a lot of, there were a lot of bands. Yeah. Like older guys that that were in bands. And, so are we still in Brampton or are you somewhere else now? Well, it was in Malton at that time. Oh, okay, right. And there was a lot of people that, that were in bands, but a, a lot of the guys were older than me. And uh, the older guys didn't want me playing with them because <laughs> you're too young I was too young and uh, at that time I was probably a little better than they were <laughs> <laughs> honest to God so right 
so at that point, and let's say we're talking like late teens, mm-hmm. who did you look up to? Who were the drummers that you wanted to be? Oh, at the, in, in my late teens? Yeah. Well, by then I was into like jazz and blues. So, I mean, uh, you know, I probably, probably around 17 years old, uh, I probably, uh, I, I stopped really being interested in pop music and was more into jazz, you know, like, and, and some of the great jazz drummers that, that I liked. I mean, of course, Gene Krupa was my, my first guy, and right. Buddy Rich, Louis Belson. Um, so did you, even with the music you were playing, were you, did you try to emulate their style of playing? Well, to some degree, except it was probably around that time that, that I discovered blues. And I really, really liked blues. I liked the playing, you know. Um, Sam Lay, uh, Willie Big Eyes Smith, uh, people like that, S.P. Leary, you know, all of these kind of guys. Um, I wanted to try and play like them. So at that time, I started listening to blues music. And the way I got into blues music was because uh, the guy who was the, the, the drummer for Downchild at the time, a guy named Paul Nixon, I knew him. And, and I heard he got a job with this Downchild blues band, which nobody had really even heard of. They were just kind of... in the com- late com- 60s? Well, that would have been uh, like early 70s. Okay. It would have been before they had the hit right. with Flip Flop. I was just... Prior to that, because Paul played on the album, that the Straight Up album that really, to this day, has made their career. Right. You know, because without that album, without the connection to the Blues Brothers, so on and so forth, they would be just another band, you know, struggling right. like all the other bands. Not that they're not, but you know, uh, they have that that profile oh, yeah. that they're one of the most few others yeah. have. Yeah. But so anyway, so Paul was in this band, Downchild, and, and, and I started listening to, the, to them and paying attention to them and then finding out about blues. And I thought, wow, I want to be in a blues band. So I was like 17. I was really a boy. And I went out. I had a job and a summer job. So I went out and um, I bought like a real drum set. I went down to Long and McQuaid's. Now, this is going back, and, and <laughs> anybody that, that would remember this uh, is going back, too. But <laughs> I don't believe it was the original Long and McQuaid store, but it was, uh, it might have been the second one. I think the very first one that Jack Long started was uh, somewhere on Church Street. This one was at 803 Young Street, and it was a house, mm-hmm. right? But it was just three floors of mayhem. I'm not kidding. It really was. I mean, you walked into this place and you couldn't move. I mean, one floor had drums and there were drum sets all over the place. And another set had guitar or another floor had guitars and amps. And it was just a a wild, wild, wild place. And everybody went there and it was always busy. 
it was so small. I mean, yeah. you know, it couldn't not be. You only needed like six people in there, and it's, you know, <laughs> with all the equipment in there, it, it was crazy. So I went down there and I bought uh, my first real set of drums, which was uh, a Rogers. Rogers drums. How did you decide on the Rogers drums? Pardon me? How did you decide on that drum? Well, I, I don't really know. I don't know. You know, Paul Nixon might have been playing Rogers. Okay. Not sure. Don't know how I decided on Rogers, but I just thought that they were the ones that I wanted as opposed to Ludwig or Slingerland or uh, any other uh, American drums, Gretsch, because at that time there were no Japanese drums. And if there were, they weren't very good. Like today, right, right. I mean, they're like Yamaha drums are as good as it gets, you know. And some of the Pearl drum kits are, are very good too. Uh, but back in the day, if they were making drums, they might have just started. Uh, they weren't very good. Not this is an aside, but if you sat down in front of five different drum kits right. and played... Right. Would they sound very different? Do they sound? Do they feel very different to you? It would depend on on what they were. I mean, uh, I think what I found out is the most important thing for getting a, a good drum sound are, are the drum heads. Right. You know, if you got good heads on there, um, you're uh, and, and you tune them halfway decent you probably get a, a decent sound. But some drums are just livelier than others, right. you know. And I don't know what it takes. I don't know anything about making drums or, or anything like that, but how they're constructed. And uh, obviously, not all the time, but the ones that are more expensive are more expensive for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's because they sound better and they play better. Um, and that may not always be the case, but I would say, you know, 99 times out of 100, that's the case. They're just... So when you buy these Rogers drums, at this point, are you thinking that you're going to be a musician? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt in your mind? Oh, there's no doubt. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I got them for that reason. I wasn't getting them to, uh, you know, just... Yeah, no, I was... This is the career path. This is it. And now I got the drums. I can go and play with a real band. So, well, I thought it was a real band. Uh, and, and so the first band I got into was a, a band called Shakedown, which had uh, um, became a very good friend of mine, uh, Frank Garcia, who was also a friend of Paul Nixon's. Frank is no longer with us. Vlado Nook was the bass player. Vlado, I believe, is still around. John Doriot, who became like a really uh, outstanding guitar player, was a guitar player. And we had a sax player by the name of Mark Dunn. And that was the first band. And we rehearsed at uh, on King Street. There used to be, there were two buildings. One of them was the Nash, which... Uh, not exactly sure. It might have been around King and Jarvis. But there was a second one that was less well-known. Same idea. Uh, it, was, uh, it was called Peacock's. And out on the main floor was Peacock Electric. And upstairs they had rooms. And, you know, there was probably half a dozen bands in some of the rooms. And, and some of the other rooms had, like, rubbies. 
living in it. And this okay. is this is where we were. We were like 17, right? And this was at King and, and George Street, I believe. And so I, w I went in there and I was like, oh, auditioned and, and, you know, carried my drums up three floors and so on. And I got the gig. And we actually played gigs, you know. And I was like underage at the time to get in. I think it was 18 for bars. I was 17 at that time. Uh, but I was able to get in because I had a beard. I didn't have a beard, but I had to shave and everything. So I, I could have been 18. Right. But I could have been 17. <laughs> I could have even been 19. You know, you'd never know. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so we started playing gigs. <laughs> and the very first road gig I ever played was uh, a place in Aurelia, actually Atherley, called the Atherley Arms, which is... <laughs> any musician from my era, Mako, would know about the Atherley Arms. They've all been there. Right. And uh, it was, like, just so great because... <laughs> Because we went there for a week. All the gigs back then were six nights, right? right. So whenever you went somewhere, it was, was always six nights. And uh, it was just fantastic because you, you get away from everybody and stuff like that. And then I discovered, you know, like, okay, so you play at night from nine to one, but like the rest of the day, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> so there wasn't really a lot to do. And I think that's why a lot of musicians get into drinking and, you know, whatever else it is they get into because those days are just pretty hard to fill up. Yeah, for sure. So, Did you ever have issues with that? Never. I was lucky. I, I was really lucky. I, I never uh, never got into uh, drinking or, or doing drugs or anything i was just i was lucky that way i guess maybe that's why i'm still going and still healthy i never had a problem uh, that's not to say i haven't had a beer or haven't smoked a joint or whatever you right. know but uh never really became addicted to to anything like that so did you do a lot of road gigs was uh, this your life well, for the next yeah year? yeah we did we did a few and, and i did that for a couple of years and then I got uh, got kind of tired of doing that. Like everything, you know, everything just kind of uh, comes to an end at some right. point. And that did, and it did for me. So I had an opportunity to, uh, this is now real big time, an opportunity to play with this guy named Subway Elvis. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, so that was the craziest thing I well, one of the craziest things ever, but I took that gig because it was exciting because he was going on a cross Canada tour. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> and you once know? again, was it Six Nighters? All Six Nighters. Okay. <laughs> and this guy was just, you know, I don't know if he's still around anymore, but he was he was nuts. <laughs> he had uh, we we put the band he put the band together. And uh, we rehearsed at his mother's house, which was out in, in like, uh, Burnethorpe and, uh, oh, like, Rathburn area. Or not Rathburn, but East Mall, something like that, West Mall. Yeah, Burnethorpe and West Mall area, somewhere out there, Mill Road. And uh, his mother had a house out there, and we rehearsed in the basement for a week. But he was never there. <laughs> 
he never came to the rehearsals. So I so guess was we, there a musical director who knew what was going on, or <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I don't think it was ever specified <laughs> as to who was supposed to do what. So we just kind of learned. I guess we had a set list or something. So we learned his songs, and then uh, the Monday, the following Monday, we head off on our uh, uh, cross Canada tour, and the first gig is in Timmins. <laughs> <laughs> So Six. for those who don't know, what is that, like 14 hours away from here? No, no, it's about seven. It's about a seven-hour drive. That's it? Timmins, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, it was probably about the same. Well, it's probably less then because now, I mean, you try and get anywhere and it's like, oh, my yeah. God. You know, it would normally take me 20, 25 minutes to get here. Today, it took me like 50 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You get on the highway anymore and it's like, whoa. So anyways, so the, our first gig was in Timmins with this guy, Subway Elvis, and we didn't even know this guy because he hardly showed, he didn't show up at the rehearsal, and he came around, you know, for five minutes here and there, and uh, he seemed like a, a normal kind of guy and everything like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a plan for the first night of our first show in Timmins, and uh, Subway says, okay, so you guys go on, you play a song, and uh, then you start into Johnny Be Good and call me up. And I'll, okay, fine. So, you know, we're like uh, 19. We didn't know anything. So we go up, we play a song, and uh, we had uniforms too, right? Um, we go up and play a song. And then we start into Johnny Be Good. <clears throat> now, Johnny Be Good, back in those days when we played it, it was like faster than anybody could ever possibly even think about playing it was just so fast so uh we're playing and after about two or three minutes we're kind of looking at each other like where is this guy <laughs> and we keep playing we keep playing you know we didn't we didn't want to stop the show my god it's subway elvis and timmons my god it's huge so, <laughs> so anyways after another couple of minutes, the keyboard player goes, he gets up and he, he goes up to his room, to, to the subway, his room. <laughs> Subway's sleeping. <laughs> He's passed out. He'd been smoking hash and, and, and drinking all day, and we didn't know. We had no idea that this guy was a freak. <laughs> so finally, you know, we keep playing. We've been, now we've been playing Johnny Good for like 12 minutes. And this guy comes running down, and he comes in. He's got like the, uh, a sparkly blue jacket on. And he comes in, and he's just insane. And this is the first time you've actually played with him. And I thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? I got like this guy. And he comes, he does his set and everything. And then, of course, he, he uh, uh, tears into us at the end of the set for not waking him up in time and blah, 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 blah. And this whole thing, this whole adventure went on for six weeks. And this guy was just mental. Wow. <laughs> so now we, we did the, the uh, Cross Canada tour was actually the first six weeks were in northern Ontario. And we finished... Uh, the on the Saturday night 
uh, in Kirkland Lake was our last of the six weeks there. Right. And the next gig was Calgary for the Stampede. Now, he didn't tell us that the Stampede started on Thursday. That was our first night of gig, was a Thursday. So we thought we were starting on Monday. So we had to leave Kirkland Lake at like 2 or 3 in the morning <laughs> and drive straight through to Calgary. Straight through. And, and, you know, we pulled into the parking lot of the place we're playing in at like 9 o'clock at night on Monday night, straight through. Three of us drive. So you know, people take, who don't know, from Kirkland Lake to Calgary is... Oh, 40 some odd hours. Yeah, straight. <laughs> straight. Yeah. And uh, we thought we had to be there Monday night. For the gig, right? <laughs> so you're not even traveling with Subway Elvis? Pardon me? You're not even traveling with him? or? Well, he had two vans. Okay. And, and uh, one van had three guys and the uh, equipment. And the other van had him. He had to take one of the guys because there wasn't enough room for everybody. Right. He had to take one of the guys and whatever. And, and he had a thing. His van was special. It was called the Subway Elvis Shaggin' Wagon. <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> Thank you. But I've never seen anything like it <laughs> since. I just couldn't believe this guy. Uh, but anyways, uh, so, yeah, so one time I did have to ride with him. I didn't have to ride with him out west, uh, out to Calgary. Thank God. Uh, I think actually... By that time, the four guys in the band, we, we didn't want to ride with him at all. So we just, you know, uh, the extra guy just kind of uh, piled himself up on top of the equipment or was better than riding with him, even though you get a front seat. And, right. You know, a luxurious ride. So anyways, we get out there. And uh, we're now playing at, at uh, we get there Monday and we find out we're not playing till Thursday, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so we finally started the gig out there and it was like 10 days, Thursday to the following Saturday. But it was um, uh, like we, we played, like we started at noon every day and played till like one. But that one in the morning <laughs> yeah so I think we played about maybe a total of like maybe five sets a day right. uh, but we had another band we shared shared with another band who was like a local band at that time but we got to know these guys pretty good and it turns out that they uh, the previous year or the year before or whatever a couple of years previous they were his band <laughs> <laughs> they were all from Toronto too, right? Right. So we got to know these guys pretty good because we're playing every day. We'd play a set, they'd play a set, and, and so on and so forth. And I think around maybe from uh, five o'clock to uh, nine o'clock or eight o'clock or something, there would be no music. It would be just stopped. So right. we'd play an afternoon set, you know, or a couple of sets, and then play again in the evening, and uh, with but back to back with the other band. And uh, so we were supposed to go from there to Vancouver after Calgary. 
and uh, we got to know these guys, and, and, and we're going, this guy, he's, he's like crazy. And they're going, oh, yeah, he's nuts, and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, somehow, uh, we decided as a band that we're leaving. We're leaving Subway. We're leaving them high and dry, and that's it. We're not going. So I guess it was the last night of Calgary. We told him, we said, no, we're, we're not going with you anymore. We're done. And, of course, he, he, he did his typical... Uh, mental trip that he would normally do anyways and uh i hope i don't know if he's alive anymore but subway you, you know i love you now but uh and i did then too but he was just nuts more nuts than we could have even imagined really and uh so we quit and we we ended up staying in calgary we got somebody to get us gigs and so on and so forth and now the the band that was uh, his previous band, the, these guys we got to know that were right. from Toronto, they had somehow worked themselves into being like the number one bar band in Calgary. Uh, they worked like 45 weeks a year and never left the city. Wow. I know that because a year later or whatever, I ended up becoming their drummer because the other guy left, whatever reason, you know, and, and the band that, that was with Subway when I went out there, uh, we were getting gigs, but all of our gigs were not in Calgary. They were in, like, Prince George, B.C., or uh, Saskatoon, or Brandon, Manitoba, or, you know, they were mm. all over the place. And in those days, uh, when you, it's, it's not like being in southern Ontario, you know, where you can, like, stay in, in a home base and, and do all kinds of gigs uh, with, within an hour of your house. No. Out there, no. I mean, you know, like, yeah. close gigs are, like, four hours away. <laughs> so, so we did that for about a year, and then I ended up working with those guys uh, for about another year and um, staying out there and... Uh, I really liked it out there, and, and I, I still do. And I still get an opportunity, thank God, to go out there uh, fairly frequently. And then you decide to come back? After a couple of years, I came back, yeah. Was there ever a point that you... Did you ever have tough times where you questioned what you were doing? Other than yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> Of course, always. You always do. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I, I think it could be the same with anybody doing anything. Uh, you know, but like it's it's something that even today, like I still like it. I still enjoy it. I mean, I realize, you know, it's it's not the greatest business or anything like that. And, you know, you're never going to really make any money or anything like that, you know, but you, you can sustain yourself right. and um, enjoy it. And, and most of the people that are from my era that I work with now, they still do it because they like it. Mm -hmm. And most of the people that I work with now at my age, they're, they're all pretty darn good. Well, you'd hope so. You would hope so, yeah. You know, and, and they've, they're well past the point of, of 
needing or, or wanting to prove anything. Right. You know? So they just go out and play and have fun. Like last week, for example, uh, I, I subbed in with Chuck's band at Rock and Docks, and he's got a, just a terrific band. He's himself and Pat Carey, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garth Vogan, who is just a fabulous bass player and a fabulous guy. And then Mitch Lewis, who's <laughs> as good as it gets. I mean, all of those guys are. But I, I just had such a fun time with those guys because they, they get it. They, they know what to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just makes it so much easier. But that's generally uh, the way it is now with, with the people that, that I play with. Right. You know, it, it, you don't find people nowadays, you know, that think that they're like, better than everybody else or talk down to people you, you just they're not around if, if, if you know I mean it's people have uh, gone this far they've gone this far for a reason because number one they could somewhat play and number two they could get along with people right and they knew what it took to be part of an ensemble to make the whole thing sound good rather than worrying about whether they sounded good or not because some people you know um, they only hear themselves. Do you think that's an... Like, it makes sense. And, and you would think at this point, you know, I mean, it would be silly to question what you're doing because you've done it for so long. But, like, the ego thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's that's just a matter of growing up or do you think it's a different times? Well, no, I think it's a matter of growing up. I think everybody, to some degree, still has an ego. But uh, they also have some, some common sense and, and they realize what the big picture is. They have maybe a better understanding of the big picture. And the, 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 the big picture is, uh, hey, if everybody collectively sounds good, then I sound better. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if I just sound good and everybody else doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. Right. So people realize that. And, you know, music playing in a band, uh, like, it's not like, you know, we just turn on a, a drum machine and hit a couple of keys on a computer and, and there's your song. I mean, it, it takes a little bit more than that. you got a guy playing the drums, a guy playing the bass, a guy playing guitar, a guy playing keyboard, a guy singing. Everybody's got to work together to make it sound right. And, and there's a lot of satisfaction in that, uh, I find, anyways, when it, when it works well. Now, musicians being the way they are and the way they feel about themselves, it's very rare that you uh, walk off a gig and go, oh, man, that was, I really felt like we were really good. Most of the time you feel like, well, you know, it <laughs> is what it is, but it was kind of a struggle, even though to the audience it wasn't. But that's just the way musicians are. And I think, you know, people are artists in general, uh, whether they be uh, actors or or whatever. I just think that's the way they feel about themselves. They don't feel like uh, every time you go out there is like a home run, you know, because it, it doesn't always feel like that. But, you know, if you get a good response from the crowd and so on and so forth, you just have to take that. Uh, for what it is, it, and move on, and, and 
even though you yourself didn't have maybe your best performance, you can't, you, you, like as soon as it's over, it's over. Right. You know, and, and you just, when the next time, the next day you go out and do it again, you try and um, remember the things you didn't do so well and, and maybe try and do them a little better. But, okay, so in your case, you've been doing this for a while. Right. Um, and you've gotten better and better. I well, presume at the same time, your standards are higher or what you try to achieve. Well, is- uh, I, yeah, I guess so, you know. I suppose they are. I mean, I never really thought about that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm lucky because when I do play a gig, I, I play a gig with people that are somewhat respected. Mm-hmm. and um, that have a reputation for being pretty good. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't take a gig with, with people I didn't know and they were offering me, uh, you know, not very good money and blah, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. I, I probably wouldn't do that. But having said that, you know, like the vintage that I come from, you know, we've all reached that uh, wherever we are. But some of the young people that are around today are are just like so outstanding. Mm -hmm. Like some of the people, like, I'll give you an example. I don't want to start naming people's names because... There's so many of them. There's so many of them. And, And, you know you're going to leave people out right you can say oh I, I think you know this list of people this group of people they're all the greatest and everything and you leave two or three people out and they're, they're mad at you but <laughs> I will name this guy's name because he, he's a guy that just totally blew me away um, and I, I've, I've heard of his name before but I never met him and, and or anything like that but uh, Gary, as you know, does the thing at the Blue Goose on mm-hmm. Sundays, so he knows a lot of people that I wouldn't really know, and he handles the whole thing, right. which is the way I want it. He Sometimes he'll ask me, like, I'm thinking about bringing this guy in, what do you think? And I go, whatever you think, you know. But uh, anyways, a guy that just blew me away, a couple of people, was uh, Fraser Melvin. He has become, like, one of my favorites. Wow. Oh, I just think this guy's outstanding. Another one is Emily Burgess. She is outstanding. And of course, I mean, I've known this guy for quite a while, but Steve Mariner. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, <laughs> anybody else who I'm not mentioning, and if anybody is listening, it's only because there's too many of you to name you all, but these are just three examples of, of some of the people that are, are just, to me, out standing really 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 good and, what do you think what do you think what do you think it is about them that that moves you about about these three that i don't really know talent obviously and, and uh, understanding of, of what they're doing and uh, understanding of, of where the whole thing came from i i that's only a guess. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I, it's got to be talent. I mean, another guy, I mean, Jimmy Boskill. Like, Jimmy. I was, speaking of Jimmy, was I was there the very first night that Jimmy was more or less discovered. And uh, 
Jerome Godbu, who who is a, a I, I just think is just so great. I love Jerome. Mm -hmm. And uh, but Jerome used to um, host Thursday nights at Jeff Healy's club at uh, Bathurst in Queen. Yeah. And uh, Jeff would come up and play a set. Uh, but Jerome was in charge of putting the band together, and every week would be a different band. But I got to do, you know, un a good number of those, thanks to Jerome. And I happened to be there the night that we're all just sitting around, and, and somebody comes down and says, oh, there's like a, this kid up there outside, he's playing. So it turned out the kid, an 11-year-old kid, was uh, Jimmy. And so Jeff went up to hear him, and he says, oh, well, come down. And brought Jimmy down and, and uh, Jimmy sat in with the band for a couple of songs and he probably sang a song I think and you know now he's uh, like an in-demand guy playing with the sheepdogs and, and, the and, and just and, and you know thing is Mako with with these people they're also like great people mm -hmm. like all of the people that I mentioned and and many 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 more just like them, Jesse Whiteley. I could go on and on and on. They're just fantastic people. You know, yeah. they they really are. Like they're just really, really decent people, and they're also really good, talented musicians. But they can get along with with anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I get a lot of uh, a lot of fun when I see people like that. Uh, that I, I just think are, are so great. You know, like they're way better than I thought. I'll, I'll give you one more example. Yeah. And this goes way back to around, probably around the time when I met you, which is probably about 20 years ago. Uh, there was a guy playing around. He's no longer with us anymore. But um, he was playing around. And I'd heard of his name before and everything like that. And I figured, yeah, he's, he's probably, you know, he's probably pretty good and everything like that. And then I got an opportunity to play a gig with him. And uh, I, I mean, he just blew my head off. He was like way better than I thought he was. And he ended up uh, becoming somewhat of a friend. And he passed on way too early. And his name was Eddie Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And he was just, he's one of those people that I'd heard of, never really knew him or got to hear him. Uh, but then I did get an opportunity to play with him, and, and I just went, wow, this guy's way better than, than I could have even imagined. Yeah. It's you weird, know? eh? Because when you think, I mean, I, I knew Eddie a little bit. Yeah. Um, great slide plays, I recall. Um, but you just think there's so many talented people out there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that equates to success. Or no. No, it doesn't. You know what, it, what I think it is more than anything? Well... I mean, I don't really know because, you know, I obviously haven't haven't explored it that much. But in a lot of cases, uh, not always the case. It seems to me uh, you have to have original music. Mm -hmm. I think you have to, uh, whether it's blues or pop or country or jazz or whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, how many? Speaking of jazz, like how many of these great, outstanding. Uh, female vocalists are there and they all go and make their albums and they sing all the jazz standards and everything like that mm -hmm. you know I mean good for you good for them but 
what's the point? Yeah. You know, like if you're not going to uh, have original music, chances are you're not uh, going to take any kind of uh, a step. That's what I think anyways. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, it seems that way. That's not always the case because there are some, you know, people that, especially in the pop music industry, that are not really that talented, that just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, if you have enough money and yeah. enough know-how and if you put the machine behind it, it will, uh, you know, go somewhere. Right. You can convince people. <laughs> <laughs> but not for a long time, though, I don't not think. Not for a long time. Yeah. But, yeah. So. so when you came back, you also joined Fathead. You were one of the original members. Oh, Fathead. Of yeah, I was an original Fathead member. Um, that was... Uh, I was in Fathead before they were good. Uh, once, once they got rid of me, uh, then they, they started making albums and got really good. <laughs> no, uh, the original lineup in Fathead was Al, Omar, um, John Tilden. Right. No, no, not John Tilden. Dave oh. Gray. Dave okay. Gray on guitar. Now, Dave, I, I know from way back in my very first band, Shakedown. Dave was in a band uh, out of um, Barrie uh, called Georgia Strait. So I knew I've known Dave for like as long as I've been playing. And Dave was in in Fathead. Tony Flame was the singer, and um, I was the drummer. And uh, we played a few gigs around town, and so on and so forth. And then eventually, uh, Flame moved on. And Flame and, and Dave were uh, like buddies. And uh, so shortly after, uh, uh, da uh, Flame, Dave moved on. Teddy Leonard came in. And then, so that was the, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, before Teddy, John Mays came in okay. uh, to replace Flame. And John was like, like the best of the best. I mean, mm -hmm. you know. And again, like what a guy. nice guy! What a guy! I mean, oh my God, what a what a what a terrible loss to to, to lose John Mays. But you know, I mean, it's uh, it's inevitable for everybody. But nevertheless, uh, John was just a great guy and a great singer. And Teddy, the same, uh, came in and played guitar. And so that was the band for a little while. And then uh, I was having some issues at the time, you know, personal issues. So uh, I just thought it was not right for me to burden everybody else with, with my own situation. And uh, so I moved on and Ed White came in. And then they started making albums and winning Junos and became a, a, a really good band. I mean, they, but they're all like, all of those guys are like some of my best friends. You know, Al Lerman, I've known Al. Like, I've known Al from the time I started playing. <laughs> Al and I, I've known Al since I was a teenager. So I never knew why you left, but is it weird when you have, when you have, when you're in a band and then you leave? And I don't know at what circumstances, but you're still friends. There's no animosity. No, 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 no. You know, we've all been... Like, we've all known each other for so long. 
And we've all been in and out of different situations yeah. through the years. So it wasn't, no, it wasn't really weird at all. It wasn't like, you know, it was, uh, no, it was just fine. We, we still remain friends. Like, that never came between us. Uh, as a matter of fact, like, I, whenever I see Al now, it's, it, you know, it's like a long-lost friend. But we see each other two or three times a year. Right. And uh, I, I was telling you earlier, uh, I'm working on a, a project at the moment, and the bass player on that is Omar. So Omar and I, we've had such a great time through the years and doing different things. <laughs> I don't even want to tell you some of the stories that were so funny. <laughs> well, and I, I won't, because, because uh, uh, one, of them, one of them involves a, a great friend of ours, and <laughs> yours too. Uh, so I, I don't even want to go there. I, I might tell you that off the record because it's it, it's kind of uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So the other person that you play with now, um, but I think you've known for a long time, is Gary Kendall. Oh, Gary! I've known Gary a long time too. All these guys, like, I mean, of all the guys in Downchild, believe it or not, I've known Donnie longer than I've known any of them. Wow. Donnie and I go back to like, when, you know, how many years? I, I have no idea. Okay, so my question was a couple of things. One is, you mentioned Omar as somebody you're working with in a project right now. Do right. you want to talk about the project a little bit? What is the... Well, yeah, it's, uh, speaking about original music, it's, it's songs that I've written. And um, uh, we've been recording it. I mean, it's just one of those things. It's, it's just taken forever. Or it looks like we're on the verge of finally wrapping it up. But it's been a couple of years. But, you know, it's been a couple of years because, number one, it's not really a band. There, there, there's no money involved or anything like that. And it's a matter of scheduling people and so on and so forth. And, and over the uh, last few years, for example, I've had to go away a lot, and so everything's got put on hold for three months, and blah, 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 and you try and pick up the pieces and, and get it all back together. So is it your solo album? Is that Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's called, the, the, the name of the band is The Prophets, with a Z. Prophets, of course. And uh, it includes, uh, it's a small band, it's Omar, Steve Grisbrook, and Michael Fonfara. And it's just a, a four-piece. Right. And we're not really a, a real band yet, but we've got these songs. We've got ten songs recorded. And uh, we're just in, in the midst of um, uh, going to be finishing it, like getting all the mixing and editing and so on and so forth done, uh, hopefully within the next two or three weeks. And uh, hopefully it'll see some life at some point. Uh, These are songs you wrote? Right. Do you sing? And I'm singing, yeah. Okay. We're all singing, but, but, but I'm singing uh, a lot of it, yeah. So what would be the motivation be behind an album such as this? Motivation? Yeah. Gee, that's a good question. Uh, I think the motivation is like, you know what? I've been doing this kind of like as a hobby for a long time. And uh, so, what do you mean, like writing songs? Is that what you mean? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I can't say that I play the piano. Like I couldn't go out and play a gig. You know, not a blues gig, anyways. But you know, I I, I play enough, and and I, I write these songs. And you write it on the piano, not the guitar. Right. 
Right. And so I, I figured, well, you know, I got these songs, and uh, I want to get them out. So let's see what happens. That's the motivation. I, I just want to do it. Because, you know, at this point, we have no idea how much longer anything is going to go. Mm-hmm. We, you don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, even at, at, at any point. If right. you're 20, you don't know. No, but as we get older. Yeah, but as you get older, you, 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 yeah. you know, the, the writing on the wall, uh, the letters become quite a bit bigger. And, we can't uh, see them as well, but... Yeah, you can't see them as well. That's why they're bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, you know, so I figured, well, you know, like, why not? So is it just those three other people? Yes. Like, so it, it is... It's not like you're just calling any bass player. It, no, it's, it's this is the specific. sort of like a band, or these are the people you want to work with. Right. These are guys that who've been friends of mine for years, and uh, you know, like I say, I, I had no money. There's no money involved, and I and I, I asked these guys if they would do it on spec, and they all said, "Yeah." They all jumped right in. So, you know, we're talking about it's taking so long and, and so on and so forth. I'll give you an example of one of the things was uh, Omar scheduling to get in. We had scheduled uh, 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 something for him, uh, a session or a couple of sessions for him to come in. And he, uh, something happened with his foot or his ankle or something. And he was immobile for like six weeks. So mm-hmm. that was a delay, you know. Right. and. There's just been a lot of delays. It hasn't been like we've been in there for two years making like a masterpiece because <laughs> that's just not the case. Are you happy with where it is? Very happy with with where it is. Yeah, I'm I'm quite pleased with uh, with some of the stuff, the way some of the stuff has turned out, and not so pleased the way some of the other stuff has turned out. But you know, that's just the way it is, and uh, I just want to you know just put it there and. See what happens. You know, probably the same thing will happen with this as it happens with everybody else's album. But I was kind of like encouraged because the last Downchild album, uh, I got to put a song on that album. So I thought, well, okay, that's kind of cool. So is that the one that won the Juno? No. No. Of course not. Because <laughs> of your not song? Come no, on. <laughs> no, but we did get nominated. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, it's a funny thing about that album because uh, now here's another guy whose name I'm going to mention because he's just such a great guy and he's well known in the, in the blues community and uh, <laughs> he's a great supporter of ours he comes out probably three times a month to Gary and, and I's uh, thing at the Blue Goose right. comes out and supports Dave Booth Daddy Cool and we were there and uh, I was talking to Dave, and somebody came over, and, and he said to me, he's, this was after the Junos of this past year, and he said to me, he says, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And I went, well, why? You know, what, what are you talking about? And he said, well, he said, uh, uh, you didn't win the Juno. And I went, it's not a big deal. We got nominated. That was fine, everything. You know, it's subjective. Like, it's not, like, yeah. how, what... What is the criteria for best album? I mean, how do you know this? What, right. what is this? Uh, it's not like the, who's got the fastest car. You know that for sure. 
And, and I said to him, I said, I mean, you know, Monkey Junk One. I mean, come on, like those guys, these guys are a great band and they're great guys, and and you cannot, uh, you know, have anything bad to say about them winning. Like you can't feel bad about that. They they deserved it. Right. And. Uh, <clears throat> Dave Booth was sitting there as this is all going on. He says, well, you know, he said, uh, yours wasn't the best album anyways. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Dave. <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah. I said, that's obviously it wasn't because it didn't win. And he says, well, Monkey Junks wasn't either. And I went, oh, really? He says, and he's, he went on to say who he thought was the best album right. that didn't win. And, and I just said to the guy, I said, not to Dave, but to the guy I was talking to, I said, well, there's my point. Yeah. Like, you know, everybody's going to have a different uh, opinion, because it is an opinion, as to what album is the best album. But anyways, we didn't win, but we got nominated. We were, uh, fortunately, uh, we won one a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. and that was nice. But the thing is with Downchild, I mean, every album that they make, it gets nominated automatically it goes into the final five somehow some way so you know there's a certain standard there <clears throat> but other people put out really great albums too sure. and all of the people that put out albums the last year that got into the final five they were all great artists and and, and great uh, uh albums you know people i, I know these people and, and they're all outstanding so tell me I didn't ask you this about you joining Downchild. Okay. So you were telling me how Downchild was one of the first blues bands that you, right, you right. were into, and, and that's how you got into the blues. Right. Many years later, you're asked to join the band. How did that happen? Well, <clears throat> you remember this. Uh, we were playing at, uh, we had a Sunday night at the, uh, I think it was called the Goose and Firkin at yeah, York yeah. Mills and Leslie. Yeah. And uh, the house band there was uh, Gary and Chuck and Steve Grisbrook, and myself. And uh, that lasted longer than I thought it would, <laughs> to tell you the truth. We were probably there for like three years. And it actually went pretty good for a while. But uh, so it was in the summertime. I guess it was 2002. Uh, would have been like late August. And they had a big patio out there. And, and we're playing the gig one night. And Pat Carey and Fonfara show up one night. And... Pat, uh, uh, other than Donnie, I think Pat, I've known Pat longer than anybody else in the band. He's so, a horn player for Down Child. Right. So Pat and Michael show up, and um, we're on a break, and we're sitting out uh, on the patio, and, and Pat says to me, he says, uh, so listen, Fitz, um, we... Uh, uh, we need a drummer. We got a, like a, this tour coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's for three weeks, and we need somebody to come in and, and do it. Would you be into doing it? And I thought about it. I said, well, you know what, Pat? I said, I think I would be into doing it. Uh, but before I say yes to you right now, uh, I have to go home and talk to my kids because I was... You know, yeah. single parent and looking after my children who were still at that time at home and growing, you know. Right. So, uh, so I did that and I went home and I talked to the kids and, and they were like, Dad, get out. 
Go away. Go, please. Yes, of course, take the gag. How old were they? Well, let's see. In the range. Oh, they weren't really young, no. They were uh, probably, uh, how many years ago was that? Like uh, 16 years ago? So they were probably like uh, 12 and 15, okay. something like that, you know. And uh, so they said, yeah, sure. So I called Pat up and I said, yeah, okay, I, I'm in. You know, what's the deal? And he told me the deal, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I said, great. So <laughs> at this point, it's only a three-week commitment. It's only a three-week commitment. And that was for me because, like I say, I've known these guys. I, I, I've known probably, I can't say I've known everybody that's ever been in Downchild, but I've known almost everybody that's ever been in Downchild right. through the years and and you know and we're talking like 50 odd people whatever right a lot yeah a lot i'm you know just about knowing them all right from the the very beginning to when i came in and uh so yeah so it was three weeks and uh we ended up having like one rehearsal the night before we left the first gig yeah one rehearsal it's like yeah okay and uh so the, the first gig was in uh, Indianapolis. And uh, everybody's, oh, they're all excited. They're happy ha having me in the band and everything. They're all telling me, oh, you're going to love it. Like it's a little small little club and everything like that. And Oh, it'll be great. And I figured, oh, this will be fantastic because, you know, I'm just learning what the, the deal is here and what's going on everything and playing in a small club. Everybody will be really close and blah, 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 blah. It'll be just great. And the other thing is, downtown, I'm like, many bands has a show that has a Absolutely. beginning middle and end i mean it's a, a set right. thing it's not like somebody calling out a tune exactly yeah. that's right so and, you and, have and to kind of know the material yeah yeah and and the arrangements basically have to be played the same way right every night not always but you yeah. know certain things at certain times and it's it's believe it or not it, it's actually pretty free but nevertheless i'll, I'll get to that later so anyways, so we go we go down there and um, nobody <laughs> see and it was for two nights. It was a Friday and Saturday, and nobody seemed to know what the deal was because although they like they played in this club before and everything like that, this particular weekend that Downchild got hired for was not to play in the club. It was the uh, inaugural. Uh, U.S., um, United States, uh, Formula One race, right, <laughs> at the Indianapolis Speedway. So the, the gig was no longer in the, in the small club, but it was in the parking lot that was, like, had this massive tent over it that you could fit a 1,000 people into. And the stage <laughs> was just massive i mean you know the closest guy to me on the stage was at your front door it's just like <laughs> ridiculous it was ridiculous and so like me never really playing with the band or anything like that i had to and my uh the stage was like a four foot stage and then i had like a four foot riser on top of that so i like i'm you know like I'm on top of the mountains looking down at everybody right. and just going, oh, yeah, you know, I needed binoculars to find people. <laughs> so anyways, it was just like, 
oh my God, and this tent is just packed full of people. And obviously the thing went over, but <laughs> it wasn't really what... Not the small club Well, they were expected. all fine with it, but Donnie... But that's the way Donnie is, or Donnie was, you know. Uh, so, anyways, I had to deal with that. And I've known this guy for a long, long, long time. And uh, it was really, really funny because we were there for two nights, and they, they gave us a band house. And uh, I was rooming, the room that I was in was just off the living room and with Chuck. So... When I wake up on Saturday morning, I wake up to all this screaming and yelling and stuff like that going on in the living room. And I'm going, what's going on out there? So I get up and I go out. And Michael and Chuck are watching golf and going completely insane, yelling <laughs> and screaming at the TV over this golf. And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> This is what I'm in for. Three uh, more weeks. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, we got through those two nights, and then we went on. We went on to uh, play uh, Covington, uh, uh, Kentucky, which was a small club, and it was like, oh, thank God, you know. And then it just kind of kept getting better from, from that point on. And, and when the tour was over, uh, <laughs> nobody said anything like, okay, we're going to get a real drummer now. <laughs> and I never said, well, I quit. And so it just has remained open-ended. So those three weeks have turned into like so almost... So nothing has been discussed? Like, <laughs> like no, you're hired or... No. <laughs> really? Wow. I guess, you know, I guess they figured when, when I came in to help them out that that was it. And, and you know, for Donnie, like, to have to go through, especially at this point, to... to have to go through getting somebody else to learn this material right. forget it that's a that's a big undertaking at this point so uh yeah so i've been there ever since uh, you know i, I but you never asked like am i in or do you <laughs> like that's never come up well i think the last night we were there we were playing uh the last night of that tour i think we were playing in rochester new york and uh, we're standing outside, and Gary said, well, Fist hasn't quit, so I guess he's in the band now. <laughs> Everybody goes, yeah. And that, that was, was that. Wow. So what does that mean to you? What has this experience meant to you, if anything? Well, I don't, you know, at that time, I thought to myself, because I've been playing in a lot of different blues bands, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, and... and you know, I would play also with a lot of people that, uh, uh, like Gary was was very good because he was always bringing up terrific American blues guys. Right. So I would often play with a lot of those guys because they came without a band. So I got to play with some pretty good people. You know, uh, Big Joe Turner, for example, uh, who was one of my idols, uh, Hubert Sumlin, and you know, so on. But anyways, um, <clears throat> what does that mean? I don't know. It's just like for me, because I'd known all these guys for so long, it was just like the natural. It was just, it was natural because I thought at the time when I took the gig, I, I thought, well, you know, 
if I'm going to be playing blues and playing in a blues band in Canada, mm-hmm. why not? I've had opportunities before. I could have been a member of that band beforehand, but I didn't do it. Um, or they didn't do it, whatever. But anyways, I just thought, you know, at this point, at that point, if I'm going to be playing blues in Canada, why not play in downtown? So has it been 20, since 2002? 2002, yeah. So like, are you like the longest standing drummer? I would be then? the longest serving drummer and probably the most recorded drummer. Wow. Yeah. Because I think we've done... Uh, I think we've done like five or six albums since I've been there. Quite a few. Huh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> you know, I never would have expected that in a million years, but, you know, it's like uh, you hear people say, well, it's like a, an old pair of shoes that just are so comfortable. I mean, that's the way it is. I mean, because I've known these guys for so long. And, right. And we, I've known them on good terms for so long. Uh, it's just... It's just a natural thing, right? Yeah. It's just we we all get along. We all have a, a good time. Everybody's different. Everybody's got their own interests and yeah. so on and so forth. But, you know, when the time comes, we we put everything aside and throw everything in and try and do the best we can. Mm-hmm. Every time we go out, and most times it works very well. There are, are times where, you know, it's just not so good. <laughs> and, and we get... No, I mean... Having said that, Mako, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're horrible. No, no. It just means that we're not up to uh, our standards. And, and you could say that about everybody who does anything, whether it's a sports player or a musician. There's certain times where it just doesn't happen for you, although you want it to. And uh, it's very rare. Yeah. No, I've always, I've seen many a downtown show. Very it's rare. It, you know, it's very rare that when we finish the, no, the last note of Flip Flop and Fly that we don't get a standing ovation. Yeah. Now, these days, I'm not really sure why we're getting the standing ovation. Is it because they went 90 minutes without anybody having to go to the bathroom? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know? But that's that says something right there. Yeah. Yeah, or they have to go to the bathroom, or they have to go to the bathroom, or something. But it, it usually, again, you know, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it usually results in a standing ovation. The Down Child Show mm-hmm. doesn't matter where it is, so that's gratifying. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and it's also deserved. I mean, you guys put on a great show. Oh well, I mean, you know, like the name Down Child for blues in Canada, it's, it's like. You know, it's, it's, downtown is like a, a, a national institution yeah, when it comes sure. to that kind of music, and deservedly so. Yeah. You know, Donnie's been, been slugging away at it through a lot of ups and downs for, well, next year will be 50 years. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is obviously like the longest serving band because, uh, other than myself, this is like I'll be going into, I guess, my 17th year, but um, starting my 17th year this September next month uh, but all those other guys Michael and Gary and Chuck and Pat Pat's been there for 35 years uh, Chuck's been there for 30 years Michael you know probably close to 30 years and Gary 
probably about the same, 25 yeah. years or something, but Gary was also in Downchild in the 80s yeah. as well, so. I don't know, it's, it, the band's been together a long time. Well, Michael, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, um, Michael. I really appreciate this. And um, You're welcome. <laughs> My pleasure. And it's great to get to know a little bit more about you. I didn't know about the Subway Elvis thing. or. Oh. <laughs> But thank you, and, oh. and good luck with your new project. Oh, thank you very much, Mako. It was my pleasure.